Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Almost Here, Around the Corner Technology, and I have Chris Lewicki, uh, CEO and Chief Asteroid Miner at Planetary Resources. How are you doing, Chris? Richard, I'm doing great. Uh, excited to be uh, on the podcast with you and talk about all oh. the ways that Future Tech is actually enabling the bold new world of mining in space. Yeah, this is... Uh, a really unusual thing I've heard first from uh, Peter Diamandis, uh, you know, quite a while ago. But um, so and your Peter premise is a, a co-founder of mine in the company. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, the premise is to mine, actually mine asteroids for materials to bring back to Earth and use. Almost. Uh, really, where it starts is uh, recovering and using materials in space, so that we don't have to bring them with us. Uh, for okay. all the history of space exploration, you know, you've put the astronauts in the in the gigantic rocket and everything they would ever need for the entire trip they had to pack with them. So it was like really complicated camping. <laughs> and hmm. uh, as we see folks like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and others uh, working to uh, get access to space, uh, we want to help enable those companies and, and that type of transportation to be able to send more people and bring less stuff, kind of like every frontier we've explored here on our own planet. Well, space, I mean, to my knowledge, doesn't have uh, any food and no, wa- you know, no water, uh, <clears throat> not many resources. I mean, what, what kind of resources could you get out there that would help astronauts? Well, the important first resource actually is water. Uh, water oh. uh, is something uh, that uh, is fairly plentiful on Earth. And as it turns out, it's plentiful on Earth because uh, in history it was plentiful in space on things like comets and asteroids. That's actually where our oceans came from. And as it turns out, if you get into you know uh, rocket science and the rocket equation, which is a uh, kind of an exponential relationship. The, the farther you go, the more fuel you need, the more fuel you need, the more fuel you need, the, the farther you go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it kind of compounds on itself uh, in, a, in an unfortunate exponential way. So one, one example of this is if you are one of the six astronauts on the International Space Station, to keep you alive for a year, you need about two tons of water. And the cost wow. of shipping that up to the space station is about $100 million. So, you know, wow. you're upwards of a billion dollars for all the astronauts just for that water, even if you recycle it. So it's, um, you know, from a, from a potable standpoint, you know, that's kind of interesting. I think everyone can kind of relate to that. But it gets interesting when you think about the environment that you have in space, where uh, once you get outside the magnetosphere, people, you know, heard of solar storms and things like that. Uh, you have radiation that, uh, at least at the moment, our cells uh, still don't really like, and we tend to develop cancers and tumors and things like that in the presence of radiation. Um, water can shield you from that, uh, kind of the same way that we, we can store nuclear waste in the bottom one of those pools. But ultimately, and this is kind of like the Rockefeller opportunity, the real use of water in space is one that probably doesn't really stand out for folks, and that's using it as fuel. And when you think about rockets like the Space Shuttle or, uh, or Blue 
Origins rocket, uh, the BE-4, it uses liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And as it turns out, those are the most powerful elements on the periodic table for burning for rocket fuel. And uh, when we were talking about the rocket equation before, if, if you can bring less fuel with you uh, and just, you know, top off when you get into space or head to uh, where your uh, where your destination is, that is right. really profoundly transforms transportation in space. And now this is where, you know, we certainly share, and Jeff Bezos has been uh, talking about this in the last year, about millions of people living and working in space. And Elon Musk frequently talks about turning people, uh, t turning humanity into a multi-planetary species. So uh, resources are part of that, and that's what planetary resources is beginning the, the groundwork for. Why couldn't you power uh, a craft uh, using solar energy, you know, from the sun? Uh, well, so it's uh, action and reaction, like Newton's laws. You have to you have to throw something uh, in space because you don't have anything to push against. Uh, it's not as simple as just spinning a propeller because spinning in a propeller in vacuum, you know, doesn't run into anything to give you thrust. Uh, so uh, we there there's stories every now and then about uh, propellantless uh, propulsion, uh, but it's it's not to a to a point yet where you know you can you can move lots of things around or move them over great distances. So uh, it's still a little bit caveman. We do have to burn things uh, and throw them out the back to uh, to move us from one point to the other. Huh. Okay. So how do you envision this would work? Would you uh, get to an asteroid, set up a base camp there, and you know when? Um, craft get into space, they would check into the asteroid and get materials there? Or, I mean, how would this work? Yeah, well, in the fully established kind of environment, and think about, you know, the, the empty United States before we had the interstate highway system. Uh, so I'm painting for you a picture of what space will look like when it's, it's got its own highway system. And we'll have something that's pretty familiar. We'll, we'll you know, we'll have the main thoroughfares and the, the, the places that it makes sense to go through uh, from getting to point A and point B. You know, the places where there are cross war roads, you'll, you'll see uh, uh, things kind of set up, whether it's fuel depots or uh, places to stay or places to stock up on, on where you're headed, areas of manufacturing and industry and recreation. Now, all the normal things that uh, pretty much anywhere where us people go, uh, we like to set up to be, to be comfortable and live our lives. Uh, so where, how we get there is uh, probably by putting a refueling uh, capability or a fuel depot in Earth orbit, uh, maybe close to the Earth in what's called low Earth orbit, uh, or maybe in high Earth orbit in places called Lagrange points, which are special mathematical kind of balance points between places like the Earth and the Moon or the Earth and the Sun, and that it's a very natural place to, to, have, a, uh, to have a crossroad, uh, so to speak, in space. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what materials besides water would be uh, super useful to have in space? Well, there's three categories. Water is, of course, in the volatiles, things like uh, um, nitrogen and ammonia and, and uh, even carbon uh, is something that's plentiful. But the two other categories you can think of as precious metals uh, and then structural metals and materials. And, of course, there's plenty of rock out there if, uh, if we have a need for that. The precious metals, this is something I like to think about uh, in like the perfection of the industry when we're really good at it. These are the materials that probably uh, would be worth bringing all the way back uh, to our economy uh, here at home. Uh, 
because we uh, have found, of course, that the platinum group metals, uh, the six elements that uh, comprise those, starting with platinum and things like iridium and osmium and rhodium, uh, these are, you know, not only rare and valuable at the moment, uh, but they're extraordinarily useful. Uh, you know, all of our auto catalysts, the petrochemical industry and refineries, uh, medical instruments, uh, high-temperature refractory materials all use the platinum group elements. Uh, and it's something today we don't use them because they're extraordinarily expensive. Um, and as a brief aside, you know, this is something that we've actually already gone through in our history with another element that uh, people are probably really familiar of. But before I tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, there, there were two, two, uh, two, two things in the 19th century, about 1850, 1860. One was uh, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, part hold, uh, kind of holding court with the, uh, uh, you know, the kings and queens of the day. And he would serve, of course, things on the finest china. Uh, but to prove his power and, and wealth, he had uh, his most distinguished guests eat off of dinnerware of this pure material, this pure metal that had never been uh, kind of collected. And that, that metal was aluminum. Aluminum mm. used to be the, the rarest element uh, in, in our society. And it was so rare that when Congress finished the uh, – or that when we were finishing construction of the Washington Monument in the United States, in our U.S. Capitol – uh, they actually capped it with the largest uh, piece of aluminum ever commissioned in history. And, you know, oh. something that would fit on your desk quite easily. Um, but, you know, th this was a very rare metal. And within 10 years of that, uh, the two gentlemen, Hall and Haro, uh developed a process through electrolysis to be able to extract this from bauxite. And as we now know, no, now aluminum is one of the most plentiful uh, metals on the planet. You know, we fly yeah. in tubes of it. Our phone and computers are made of it. Our electricity is transmitted through it, and we wrap our burritos in it and then throw it away. So, <laughs> so this is something where you know it used to be very scarce, and it was technology that unlocked it. And you could think of the platinum group metals in kind of that similar way. There, there's a lot of it out there, and we know this from meteorites, those shooting stars that you see from time to time at night. And they land on the earth, and we analyze them. So we're we're sure the stuff is out there, um, but of course it's going to take a bit of technology to go out in space to get it. So that's that's really the perfection of the industry. In between uh, fuel depots and water and and supporting um, uh, life support and those types of things, we're going to have construction right. materials. And these these are like things like iron, nickel, and cobalt, kind of the the steel of the Iron Age uh, of space. And what's probably different about this is folks who are familiar with the evolution of 3D printing technology, we've gotten a lot better in recent years with uh, additive metal manufacturing, you know, either through um, uh, you know, direct melt uh, or, or other techniques where we're, we take powders and we're able to, to make very complicated uh, but very strong uh, structures out of metal. And uh, we had fun at, uh, with an announcement at CES last year uh, where we actually took uh, part of an asteroid from a from an iron meteorite, powderized it, and then put it in one of 3D Systems uh, metal 3D printing machines, and printed the first object wow. ever made from alien metal. Um, That's really so cool. This, huh. Yeah, yeah. So I, I go on and on about that, but uh, I'm sure you have other yeah. topics that you want to you want to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Um, what about space junk? I, you know, I've heard there's tons of junk orbiting the Earth. Could that be harvested, or is it just not feasible or not worth it? 
for material? Uh, yeah, so there's there's a you know people have probably seen the movie Gravity and you know that's as always with the uh, with Hollywood movies it's not quite the accurate interpretation of things but you know close mm-hmm. to home in especially you know right here in Earth orbit between uh, where where the space station orbits in low Earth orbit and all the way up to geostationary orbit where our weather satellites and communication satellites and direct TV and those types of things are up there. Um, you know, we've got we've got tens of thousands of objects. You know, many of them are active satellites, but lots of them are bits of junk. Um, out beyond that, of course, there's practically nothing. Um, so this is something that we have to, uh, uh, I think, long-term in space, be mindful of, kind of like, you know, cleaning up the yard uh, from time to time. Mm-hmm. But right. it's really hard to do because, you know, as I had mentioned, uh, you know, everything you ever need, you have to send up. Uh, on one rocket, and it's got kind of a limited lifetime and a limited place it goes. So, you know, imagine a trash truck that can only go out to one house and pick up one one uh, trash bin, and then it has to take it, you know, take it to the uh, uh, to the landfill. You know, you wouldn't be picking up much trash if that's the way that you had to do it. But unfortunately, okay. the the physics in space makes it about that difficult. But here's an opportunity gotcha. again, if you know, if you could refuel that trash truck and be able to have it, you know, do a city block or be able to do a neighborhood, you know, that's really what being able to get fuel in space can allow us to do to uh, to be able to really just have a lot more accessibility and, and power in what we do in space. So how are you supposed to land on a uh, or cap? I mean, I would guess the energy from a that a comet or an asteroid has is so tremendous you could never stop it, but how would you land on one then? Well, asteroids uh, are orbiting around the sun just like uh, just like the Earth is, and uh, there's probably a hundred million of them. You know, depending on wow. on uh, how small you go down to count. It's like how many how many grains of sand are there on the beach? You know, or how many stones are there? Like, well, how big is a stone? So, of, of these sixty million objects uh, over the past uh, twenty or thirty years, scientists have cataloged uh, uh, almost three quarters of a million of them. And of that group, there's about 15,000 that are relatively close to the Earth's orbit. Uh, so these are things where, you know, think of it as the bus. You know, the bus going by, uh, you, you, uh, the best time to get on the bus is when it's on the bus stop out in front of you. And you, you right. wouldn't want to get on it when it's four stops ahead of you because you'd have to huff and puff to catch up. So rendezvousing with an asteroid is a lot like that, where we find ones that are kind of on the same path that we're on, and a lot of the near-Earth asteroids are that way. And we can really catch up with them, and we don't land on them. There's, there's very little gravity. You actually dock with them. And uh, mm. just like uh, a mine or an oil well might work uh, here traditionally, you, you do everything you need to get the material kind of on-site. And you, you purify it as much as you can, as much as is practical, and then you take that material away to its point of use, like those few depots in, in Earth orbit. So, um, you know, this is something that will start out on a very small scale initially. You know, we might start with a single kilogram of water uh, on, a, mm-hmm. on a first experiment just to prove that it can be done. And as people know from tinkering, figuring out all the different problems you're going to have uh, that you didn't expect when you actually got to do it. Uh, but over time, we'll scale it up, and we'll use more automation and AI and uh, sensor technologies that we're seeing on drones and self-driving cars. And that's really a lot of the stuff that uh, me, as a, a former NASA engineer, I'm excited about all the different technologies really in every element of consumer, industrial, and transportation technology 
that are really available to apply to some of the big challenges in space. And we don't have to do it all ourselves now. We can, we can adopt some of these things from other industries and repurpose them uh, towards uh, challenging things like asteroid mining. Yeah, so I guess you would um, find an asteroid large enough that you wouldn't impact its orbit if you uh, – essentially you're saying you're running alongside the asteroid as it traces its normal path? Yeah, so, you know, it's, and, and again, this is, uh, you know, we were talking about New one of Newton's laws earlier, and another one of Newton's laws is an object in motion stays in motion. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you when you climb the stairs at a building, the building doesn't go anywhere. It, it's It's got so much more mass than you uh, that it's fine to just sit right there. And in a lot of ways, asteroids are kind of the same way. They're, you know, these things are millions and millions of tons. Uh, they're going to keep orbiting the sun just fine like they have been for billions of years. Uh, and, and it's like, you know, ants crawling around on the surface. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. How close are you, uh, how close is the company to doing something like this, and what's the estimated cost to do so, to do the first Yeah, test? well, we are already on our way. Uh, our company is uh, has been in operations uh, now with a, with a staff of 60 folks, and we're uh, based in Seattle, Washington, uh, and we've been we've been going at it for a number of years now. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we launched our first experimental satellite, testing out new computer systems and software uh, and architectures for how you how you can do for a million dollars what you know NASA may have one done once done for a billion dollars. We have two more satellites, really our next generation, where we adopted a lot of that technology and and then added sensors that help us find water on asteroids and help us point and orient our satellites. And uh, those two are, are uh, finishing up here in our facilities, and we'll be launching them on a SpaceX rocket and on an Indian rocket later this year. And now we are really picking up steam with a, with a number of uh, really, uh, I would say, unexpected and, and, uh, and uh, great milestones that have happened in just the last few years. The first of which is a little bit more than a year ago, uh, the uh, U.S. signed into law uh, legislation that helps clarify who owns what you take off of an asteroid. And this was um, oh. a bill that, that really uh, made clear. It's kind of like you know fishing in international waters. You get a license. Right. You don't own any, any fish in the sea, but once you go out and they're in your net and you bring them up on the deck of the ship, well, that's your property now. And uh, mm. that's something that uh, a number of other countries have actually stepped up to, uh, to also put that in their national law. The, we're seeing this in the Gulf Coast region with the United Arab Emirates and their new space program. Uh, and then most recently, the tiny little country of Luxembourg. And that uh, leads me to, to, to one other kind of development uh, in just the last year. Uh, the prime minister and the deputy prime minister of the country last spring announced a, a quarter billion dollar initiative uh, where they are trying to set up the center of the world and the industrial center uh, for space mining. And in doing that, oh. they actually invested 25 million euro in our company and uh, are working with us to set up a European headquarters. So this is something that, that governments are taking up, that businesses are taking up. And of course, uh, we've been working on it for some time, but you know, this is you know, kind of the how things begin and, and get underway. So in the just a few more years, we expect uh, by about uh, the, the end of 2020, which is now less than four years away, we'll be sending our first resource survey mission out to a candidate near-Earth asteroid. Wow. Are you going to tag the asteroids, you know, maybe drill into them and, um, you know, leave a marker so you can 
keep analyzing what's going on with a given asteroid? Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, technologies we can use. And, you know, when I worked at NASA, uh, we, of course, have uh, developed over the past 15 years rovers, and we've got uh, different probes that we can leave on the surface. And, you know, now even tiny little sensor packages that you could maybe blanket on the surface. And we were interested, of course, in everything that we can learn about these objects uh, and really exploring new ways to do it that maybe you know, NASA wouldn't have done because you know, they're, they're still kind of operating out of a, a more traditional way of doing things. So yeah. uh, a lot of different techniques and using different aspects of sensors and uh, different parts of the, the spectrum to really learn everything we can about these objects. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could put sensors on an asteroid and piggyback on its uh, trajectory to, you know, and you'd have a reduced energy need uh, to move a, uh, a set of sensors around the universe and learn things. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, in, in a little ways, you know, building out the, uh, the network infrastructure where we can set up hubs and spokes and, and uh, <laughs> things like that. So it's, it's, the stuff feels, you know, like it's, it's right out of science fiction, but... You know, if we just go back 30, 40, 50 years and, and, and realize where we are today, you know, we're living in a science fiction uh, uh, reality today. And it's something where, you know, this stuff is, is not going to happen overnight, but I'm confident that it's going to happen a lot sooner than most people realize. That's amazing. What about, um, well, I guess the asteroids would be a lot. Uh, yeah, put it in context. Um, the asteroids that you're looking at versus the distance to the moon. Like how close are some of these asteroids? That would be yeah, useful. so uh, you know, distances uh, it varies, uh, and it some of these things can pass right by the Earth, and they they come very very close uh, between us and the Moon, and and sometimes they're on the other side of the Sun, uh, so they're really all over the solar system. But distance is is kind of uh, what I would say a a a, uh, a uh, humans on the savanna way of looking things. We're we're thinking kind of linear when we think about di distance, and you. You really have to think about exponential because we're talking about energy and how much gas does it take in the gas tank uh, to get to these things. So what might surprise everyone listening is that of those 15,000 asteroids that are relatively near to the Earth, when you talk about fuel in the gas tank, uh, over 4,000 of them are actually closer to us than the surface of the moon. And you know these, these 4,000 asteroids were barely known uh, when we had a, a dozen people walk on the moon uh, 45 years ago. Uh, but we've discovered them very recently, and, and it turns out that these places are really a much easier place to get started than doing the very hard thing of landing on the moon. How fast do the asteroids move, by the way? Uh, they move, uh, you know, kind of the same speed as the Earth does. The Earth is orbiting the sun at, a, at about uh, 30 kilometers per second, uh, and I think the relative speed is probably the interesting thing. Uh, we have to, in order to catch up to an asteroid, uh, add anywhere between about 3,000 meters per second to our speed, uh, maybe on the high end to about 5,000 meters per second. Uh, and that's actually the same amount of energy that it takes to put a communication satellite in geostationary orbit because you have to kind of have to get up to cruising speed and then stay there. And it, instead of, uh, instead of uh, doing the work that it takes to stay in Earth orbit, you can just head straight to the asteroid. So that's that's really how energetically close many of these objects are. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the idea of thought is the thought was that if you could hitch onto one that moved really fast or went to a place in the uh, solar system where 
we normally wouldn't go, we could get data from, you know, by sitting on it and following its path and seeing yeah, areas we don't normally see. We're, we're, we've done that a little bit already in uh, you know, the work of the different uh, space agencies. Uh, right now, orbiting the first asteroid ever discovered, uh, an asteroid called Ceres, is a NASA mission called Dawn. And it's, it's actually uh, at its second asteroid uh, that it's ever visited. Uh, the Europeans huh. had a, a mission called Rosetta and a little lander called, Shem, uh, called uh, Philae uh, that uh, landed on a, a comet called 67P churimov gerzhmenko um, it's a mouthful, but uh, they named after the the people who discover them, and you know that that hitched a ride and has been riding around the sun on those. There's a concept actually that Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, uh, few people, a lot of people know that you know he was an Apollo astronaut. Few people know that he's got a PhD in in astrodynamics from MIT, and uh, he's actually worked out the uh, orbital mechanics on something called a cycler. And this is, you know, imagine having a place that just kind of goes back and forth between Earth and Mars. And uh, it's something where uh, you could start building up um, kind of a base of operations. You have a, a comfortable place to stay. You have a laboratory to do your work. You have communications uh, infrastructure so you can keep in touch with your colleagues and your family. Uh, and all this is set up and, you know, it's just kind of like a, a, like a cruise ship that's constantly cycling between Earth and Mars. And it might yeah. be the case that, uh, you know, rather than building that from scratch, we can actually build something like that on a cycling asteroid and use that as a base of things uh, and be able to recover the materials from that asteroid for the things that we need to do there. This is it's kind of like, you know, get, getting to uh, the American West and, you know, needing to build a home and rather than bringing in bricks, just, uh, you know, cutting down some trees and building yourself a log cabin, uh, using right. the local materials and uh, the things that you have at your disposal uh, to make the job a lot easier. What, um, if you were to bring back, uh, you know, treasure, I guess for lack of a better word, resources from an asteroid, what's the um, estimated value of, that it could be? That a good <laughs> well, it, it all depends, you know, on, on market supply and demand. And, you know, if you if you brought back more platinum group metals than have ever been mined in history, of course the platinum the the price of platinum is going to change. Um, uh, and you know the same thing happened with that story I told about aluminum. You know, aluminum is is uh, is now very cheap, but it, it used to be more expensive than gold. But this is something that it's it's hard to comprehend the scale of what's out there. You know, the the gross, gross world product is is something like seventy trillion dollars a year. And uh, if you think about the value that's on one of these asteroids and what it could provide, you know, over a 10, 20, 30-year lifetime, uh, there are numbers that, you know, are measured in an economic impact of trillions of dollars. Uh, and wow. it's because it, it kind of removes the limits that we have on Earth. You know, we've, we've kind of lived in all the easy places. We've, we've taken up all the lands by the, the beautiful beaches and, you know, we've built up all our cities and they're, you know, we're, we're um, you know, we can't add another... Uh, can't add another 10 billion uh, people to the planet easily because, you know, there's, we don't have a place to, to put all of those folks. But there's really right. no limits in space. And, and this is, you know, really how we kind of bridge the gap from where we started out on this, on this precious blue planet and uh, I hope uh, where we'll, we'll end up, which is Earth is being a, a very place, nice place to come from and a wonderful place to visit, but we have so many other places that people will want to visit and raise families and build companies and, and enjoy their lives. 
Why not um, mine the moon? Is it just too far to be practical? Is there not enough good stuff on the moon? I mean, oh, well, a, a number of different reasons. And there are some companies who are exploring uh, ways to do that. One of the big challenges with the moon is that it has gravity. And, you know, you have to slow down so you don't crash land on the surface. And then anything that you, you mine on the moon, you know, whether, uh, whether it's water or metal or anything like that, you, you have to get it off the moon. And, you know, when uh, we brought back all those moon rocks, you know, we couldn't bring very many of them because, uh, of course, we had to send all the fuel all the way from Earth, from Cape Canaveral, Florida. So what's very likely is that when we, when we get resources on the moon, like ice from the permanently shadowed craters in the North and South Pole, we won't export that ice from the moon. We'll actually use it locally because uh, it might be the easiest place to get it. So if we have a, a moon base or a research station uh, or things like that, we'll, we'll tend to prefer getting all the material locally there to the moon. And uh, because we can get the material easier from asteroids for other places, uh, you know, we'll use asteroids for those locations. It's kind of, you know, where you source your materials is, is dependent on a, on a number of different factors. And in space, now you have to take into account gravity. Yeah, what, uh, this is kind of a, you know, maybe out of the way question. How come we haven't been back to the moon in, in so many years? What's, what's the problem? <laughs> um, I, you know, there's a lot of different uh, takes on that. Uh, I think one thing... You know, for, for me, someone who's grown up in, in, the, in the space age and in that environment, uh, you know, we remember at one time there was a Cold War, and what really motivated us to get to the moon uh, was, was fear. Uh, you know, we, wanted, uh, we either wanted a red moon or a red, white, and blue moon uh, in the 1960s. So, you know, it was a national imperative to, to make sure that, uh, um, at least in the United States, that, that we got there first. Uh, and did that, you know, potentially as a as a show of uh, of our capability. And thankfully, we haven't had a strong motivator like that uh, since that period of time. But what I think we're we're seeing now really emerge is rather than having something uh, motivated by ideologies and you know federal spending and and those types of things, companies like ours, companies like SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic. Uh, uh, Bigelow has uh, got a, a habitat attached to the space station right now, which is built by a private company. Um, we're, we're seeing the, you know, the foundations that the, the government programs have laid are now being leveraged a little bit by private companies. And I think we've seen that all throughout history, and I'm sure that we'll be back to the moon soon. Okay. Excellent. Um, I mean, there's so much to talk to you about. This is great. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting. Maybe talk about yeah, well, the conception what, of the idea. Where, where did that come from, and you know, where did this come? Where did this idea come from? Yeah, well, my co-founders in the company are Dr. Peter Diamandis, who is known for the X Prize Foundation and Singularity mm -hmm. University, among many other things, and uh, another friend of ours, Eric Anderson. And uh, Eric is an aerospace engineer who. Uh, founded a company called Space Adventures. And if you've ever read uh, about someone making a fortune and then buying a ticket and, and riding into space on a, on a, rocket, a Russian rocket, uh, Eric was the, the guy behind the scenes making that happen. And nice. what we realized, uh, and this was uh, a number of years ago, was that you know, the, the ideas of space tourism and, and you know, people taking brief, brief uh, visits into space really wasn't going to move the needle in terms of growing the economy out there. Uh, 
But something that would would be, you know, the development of wealth, the development of resources, the the infrastructure that was really going to power our um, our, you know, realizing our human potential in space. And every everywhere we've gone, we've needed resources. So, you know, think about how valuable it would have been if if you were the landowner of Manhattan Island. Uh, and, you know, you knew how important yeah. that place was going to be in the future and how it was going to be the crossroads of the world and the financial centers and, and the culture and, and everything that we that we know about New York. Um, that's an opportunity that we we have in developing resources on asteroids. There, there's going to be a couple of them that are going to be very, very important uh, and very valuable for all of the infrastructure that we build as, as we start working our way out into space. And that's why we're starting today. And it's, I think a lot of people get caught up in uh, like the details of, well, how are we going to build all that stuff? How is all that stuff going to come to pass? Uh, you know, we, we don't know how to mine an asteroid yet. Um, but it's, it's really kind of like uh, realizing that when uh, Rockefeller uh, was uh, working with uh, Standard Oil in the very, very early days, uh, oil was a replacement for whale blubber for lighting. And, uh, you know, that wasn't exactly a growth industry for oil, but uh, as we know, you know, both, uh, both for great reasons and, and, and for some reasons maybe that we're, we're less comfortable with, oil became extremely important in the 20th century, and it really redefined and reshaped the planet and our economy. So here we are at the beginning of the 21st century, a uh, little bit more than 100 years later, uh, kind of standing on the edge of a similar opportunity and looking forward and realizing that, you know, anything that we do that allows us to grow and scale is going to need these things, uh, and this is going to be very important. And I think the exciting thing is that we, we have the technology to do this now. It's not a matter of, of how or, or if. It's a matter of when. And uh, that's what we're excited to be working towards. Yeah, a couple more questions. Um, materials that have come back from space, is there anything in them that can't be identified, or is it just elements that may not uh, you know, be as prevalent here. Is there any truly alien material that anyone's found? Kind of, uh, and uh, I hope not to disappoint people. Uh, if you're familiar with, uh, I, would, I would say there's probably people in your audience that are familiar with the, uh, the nuclear se sequence of the formation of, uh, of stars and nuclear fusion and things like that. Uh, so all the elements are the same everywhere in the universe, uh, just because you know, quantum mechanics and all those things kind of work the same everywhere. So, you know, from, from uh, you know, element one, hydrogen, hydrogen, all the way out to the end, uh, we've got the same stuff. Now, what we do see, and we actually have evidence for this in meteorites, is, you know, these elements combine in different ways. And we get minerals uh, that maybe either aren't very common on Earth or, in a few cases, don't exist at all. And this, in a lot of ways, is the science that help us under, uncover when we look at a particular rock. And, uh, you know, an example of this is we, we find rocks in Antarctica, you know, laying on top of the ice. Uh, so we know for certain that, you know, it just didn't, didn't go there and it didn't land and it didn't fall off a, a mountain or something in Antarctica. It fell from the sky in the form of a meteorite. And we were able to actually identify some of those meteorites as coming from the moon, some of them coming from Mars. Uh, some even from the planet Mercury, and it's because we can look at them and realize that there's things in those meteorites that that just don't exist on Earth in uh, minerals and different isotopes and gases. So, whether that represents a you know an opera, uh, opportunity to to make uh, 
oh, you know, what if, adamantium or something like that, uh, uh, time will tell. Uh, but the, <laughs> the elements that we know of are, are still very useful for the, a lot of the things that uh, we use in our, in our economy. Okay, but there's, all right, so there's minerals you may not know exactly what they are, but there's no new elements, there's, there's none of that stuff. No, there isn't. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> well, you can hope, you know. <laughs> when you mentioned what you guys did at CES last year, that's why it, uh, it came into my head. Because you're saying, yeah. it's, you know, it's alien metal, but in a sense, it's kind of not, you know. Yeah, well, to a certain sense, you know, the entire Earth is alien metal, and, and all of us are stardust. That's a result of a, of a supernova, you know, sometime more than five billion years ago. So that'll put your life yeah. in perspective. <laughs> True. Um, is there any um, any public participation in what you're doing, um, any way that you guys are uh, getting the general public involved either in the learning or somehow interacting with planetary resources as you guys are working on these these things? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd encourage people to go to our website, planetaryresources.com. Uh, there you'll find a number of articles and features, and you can sign up for a newsletter. Uh, of course, on social media, you can find us uh, in all those normal handlers on, on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we have done a, a lot of crowdsourcing things uh, over time. We've done projects where we try to uh, see if people can find asteroids better than computers have, and we've done algorithm challenges with NASA, uh, and we're we're always using opportunities like that to engage with folks. So uh, that's a place to go look. Uh, we're also hiring, so if you're interested in maybe a promising future career in asteroid mining, check out our careers page, and uh, we're oh. looking for places both here in the U.S. in uh, in the Seattle area as well as the European headquarters we're uh, building now in Luxembourg. So. Uh, this isn't something that's just limited to Americans anymore. It uh, is something really that is is going global, and I, I look for it being post-global and, and sometime trying to figure out, you know, how we make employment papers from a from a future space colony. Very good. Yeah, just one last question, one curiosity. Um, are you able to identify uh, juicy candidates to to look at from Earth, or how do you yeah, identify actually, um, whether an asteroid is good or not? Yeah, Richard, that's a great question, and this is something that uh, also I think few people realize is we can know more about an asteroid floating in space around the sun by looking at it through a telescope than we can about many mines or, or oil wells on Earth. There's nothing between us and it across 100 million miles of space but vacuum. And the same way that we can know what our sun is made of, the same way that we can know that there are planets around other stars, uh, you know, the same way that we can kind of measure these things that are light years away, uh, we can look at an asteroid and have a pretty good idea that, hey, this one is one that probably has a higher likelihood to have water in it. Because what we also have, in addition to be able to look at all these things with telescope, is we have pieces of them in the form of meteorites that have uh, impacted the Earth uh, when you see a shooting star. About 50,000 of these have actually been picked up and analyzed in laboratories with you know, all the latest equipment and uh, uh, different uh, analytical procedures. And, and now, just in the last 10 years, that's been combined with missions from NASA and the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency with actually going out to these places and in, in uh, some cases, picking up pieces of them and bringing them back. So this is why right now is a perfect time to be building out on this uh, because most of this knowledge is very, very recent. Uh, 
And it's really just been within the last decade or so uh, that we've seen the confluence of all the pieces that allow us to, to really start uh, building out a company to, uh, to leverage the opportunity, build on this knowledge, and, uh, you know, uh, create a profitable business out of it. Well, very good. Well, it's been uh, definitely a futuristic episode. I appreciate your time, and, uh, you know, it's been great to talk to you. There's a lot more questions, but uh, there's only so much you can ask. So. Yeah, certainly, okay. and uh, uh, appreciate the discussion. And, you know, one thing I just want to leave people with is just the realization mm -hmm. that uh, it's not the government and it's not NASA necessarily that's doing 100% of the innovative work in technologies that are helping to explore space. More and more of that is coming from the private sector and uh, the consumer markets and the industrial technologies that we have. And there are so many connections between, you know, leading edge markets in technology that allow us in ways that we've never done before to be able to apply these things and to lower the cost of going into space and do really audacious things like asteroid mining and planetary resources. Okay, well, very good. I appreciate the interview. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 